We come to the time of our service in which we worship God by heeding and giving attention to His Word. If you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 14 this morning, which is the third. Excuse me. There we go. Uh, which is the third of a four-part introduction uh, regarding Evangelism 101. Uh, Just so you remember, Peter has been laying out for us in this letter essential Christianity, Christianity 101. In other words, this is not Christianity for those who are exceptional that you read autobiographies about, right? This is Christianity that is intended to be lived out by you and by me. This is how to live in the world for the glory of God. The first half of this letter was all about establishing our identity, that we are elect exiles. We are those who have been wondrously chosen by God for salvation, but also as a result, because of that, we're experiencing increasing rejection from the world. And now, as we come to the latter half of this letter of 1 Peter, Peter is transitioning, very importantly, from who we are as elect exiles to then what we do what we ought to do. Because you can never separate identity from action. As elect exiles, what effect ought our lives to have, specifically in the passage before us, on the unsaved around us? On those who do not know Christ? And the answer that Peter gives in the passages set before us is that our lives are to have a saving and a sanctifying effect. In short, as Peter explained in verse 12, we are to be leading the lost to Christ by the effect of our lives. As Matthew 28:19 says, we are to be making disciples as we go about our everyday lives. So how do we most effectively do that? Answer, it is by the power of our transformed lives. That is what God says from chapter, tw- uh, chapter 2, verse 12, all the way to the end of chapter 3. It is by adorning the doctrine of our Savior through lives of stunning righteousness, reverence, and submission that we set the stage to effectively sharing the gospel to the lost and begin to underline our gospel message rather than undermine it. And as we've been seeing over the last two weeks, the characteristic of a born-again believer that is seen as the most surprising, the most convicting, the most unusual to an unsaved soul is the stunning characteristic of a submissive spirit. That spirit does not exist among those who do not know Christ. Scripture is replete with examples of how the unsaved hate God and hate one another and they resist every form of authority that is ever put over them. And this began way back in Genesis when Satan snuck into the garden and said, can you really trust the authority that God has put over you? Can you really trust God and His Word and what He has said? How about you live life on your own? resistant to authority and we are living in the consequences of that still and so what sets us apart from the souls of those who do not know christ the first characteristic that peter mentions is the spirit of stunning submissiveness this is what peter teaches right after he says in verse 12 that the lost are brought to christ and made ready for the day of visitation by believers he says doing good He then tells us the very first good thing that we as believers should be doing to prepare the hearts 
preparing hearts around us for the message of Christ, and that is be subject for the Lord's sake. Be stunningly submissive. This is what sets us apart from the unsaved world, and this is the beginning of evangelism 101. And that is why Peter in verses 13 through 17 is going to make sure that we understand exactly what biblical submission looks like. Two weeks ago, at the beginning of verse 13, we saw the command and motive for submission, where Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake. Last week, in the middle of verse 13, we looked at the extent of submission, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And we looked at what those institutions were, what their roles ought to be, and how we as Christians are often called by God to simultaneously speak to and be subject to those same institutions. Well, this morning we're going to look at the example of submission given at the end of verse 13 into verse 14. It's a very popular subject, should be a lot of fun. And then next week we're going to look at the purpose and principle of submission from verses 15 through 17. So the command, motive, extent, example, purpose, and principle of stunning submissiveness as the introduction to Evangelism 101. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2. And again, for context, I'm going to start in verse 11. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words to us this morning. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of God whose salvation is far from the wicked and far from those who seek not his statutes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would lead us on level ground over these next few moments. Father, I thank you for your word, that it speaks clearly and powerfully. And so I pray that your spirit would be at work among us this morning so that we might develop so that we might manifest the life of Christ day in and day out towards those around us so that they might see a life that is truly supernatural that can only be explained by the power of Christ. Towards that end, Father, I pray that you would shape all of our hearts and minds this morning according to your truth by your spirit and power. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So after Peter introduces the command, the motive, and the extent of biblical submission, he finally puts the rubber to the road, and he lays out for us here the example of submission. The end of verse 13 into verse 14. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And here's his first example. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or as governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Notice the first example that Peter gives that we as followers of Christ ought to show subjection to is, he says, the emperor as supreme. Now, the emperor that God told the Christians to submit to here in this letter was a man named Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. Thank goodness you don't have to put that on your driver's license, right? That's a long name. That's why most people just call him Nero. And Nero ruled as the fifth emperor over the Roman Empire from 54 to 68 AD. Now let me tell you a little bit about this guy, Nero. He comes from a great family line. Can you sense my sarcasm? Several ancient historians describe both the natural father and grandfather of Nero as, quote, brutal, perverted, and short-tempered, unquote. And when you study this guy's life, Nero must have done his best to carry on his family's corrupt lineage because this guy is about as bad as it can possibly get. Through the marriage of his mother, Nero was adopted at the age of 13 by the current Roman governor, Claudius. And so how did Nero repay that kindness of becoming an adopted son of the emperor? Within three years, he had incestuously married into the royal line and promptly assassinated his predecessor, his father-in-law, to gain the emperor's throne at the age of 16. And there on the throne, he quickly gained the reputation of a racist, incestuous homosexual who murdered his opponents in broad daylight, killed his own mother for no known reason at all, used taxpayer money to fund barbaric games of murder in the Colosseum, and then in his utter madness, shortly after the time of this letter being written, set fire to and burned close to a third of Rome to the ground so that he can make space to build a grand palace in his name. And rumor has it, that he even played the fiddle as he watched the city and its residents burn for over ten days. And then Nero turned around and he blamed it all on the Christians and killed thousands of innocents by driving them through with spikes and setting them on fire to provide light for his nightly palace yard games. This is the type of emperor that Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, that we ought to lift up holy hands in prayer towards and for. This is the type of emperor that Paul in Romans 13, 7 says we ought to pay taxes to whom taxes are due. This is the type of emperor that Peter says here we ought to be subject to for the Lord's sake And that is verse 17 says, we ought to honor and respect before others. So what excuse do you have for not paying your taxes again? Which leaders of our country are so corrupt, you don't have to respect them? 
what law is so distasteful that you don't have to obey it? Because this is the example of subjection and submission that God puts before us in this letter. A guy like Nero. Which tells us, by the way, very important, listen to this, tells us, by the way, that the basis for a believer's subjection to government is never grounded on the worthiness of those in that government. At least in the area of morals, we can at least say, studying morally, who Nero is, right? You say, okay, well, maybe Nero wasn't a moral leader, but maybe he was a societal leader. We just studied about what society should look like from a biblical perspective, right? Maybe he was a statesman, right? And he at least understood how society and government and people ought to work and function together, right? Maybe that's the basis for God's command here to be subject to the emperor. You don't have that as an excuse either. Nero was not a societal leader. He did not understand the complementary biblical spheres of authority that we talked about last week. That dude was a straight-up dictator. Okay, Nero was that little dragon that I enjoyed putting up on the screen last week that just wants to eat everything else up. Every essential institution was consumed by the state and eventually nearly consumed by Nero himself as an entity. As Peter says here, the emperor ruled how? What does it say? As supreme. During his reign, Nero had nearly absolute power over every sphere of Roman life. Though the Senate existed, their authority and their numbers had diminished to being mere figureheads as Nero coalesced near absolute power around himself and became the sole entity in the empire who not only could make laws but also enforce them and, by the way, also excuse himself from them. That is seen most evidently when Nero brutally murdered a political opponent at his own dinner table by using a poison that was so strong it left marks on the dead body and the Roman Senate did nothing. Why? Because frankly, the Roman Senate was doing the exact same thing. So Nero was neither a moral leader who followed biblical morality, nor was he a societal leader who followed biblical sociology and respect for people. (laughs) He was just a bad dude. Yet he occupied a position in government of authority as the emperor. And God tells us here, be subject for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. And then he says this, or as governors as sent by him. And I know you got questions, I'm getting to them. But also the governors as sent by him. And the reason why Peter keeps uh, that statement general, right? He says the emperor, but then here he says governors in general. It was because the, these believers were undergoing a bit of transition period at this point, whether you look at it from Israel's perspective or from Turkey's. Uh, The current Roman governor of Judea, for example, during the time of this letter was written, was a man named Gessius Florus. But Florus had only recently taken over after two previous governors, Portius Festus and Lucius Albinus, both of whom were relatively friendly, I want you to know, towards Christians. They were relatively friendly. Festus was the governor that was mentioned in Acts 24-25 through that was ready to release Paul until Paul appealed to Caesar And Albinus was the one who disbanded the Jewish Sanhedrin after they executed James, the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church, by stoning. So both of these governors did a fairly good job of maintaining basic justice and promoting domestic tranquility, right? And then Gessius Florus came along. 
And to borrow the words of the ancient historian Flavius Josephus, Governor Florus abstained from no form of robbery or violence. No man poured greater contempt on truth. None invented more crafty methods of crime, unquote. And when his superiors were notified of his corruption, Governor Flores did everything possible to incite a domestic revolt to distract from the charges that were laid against him. It's almost like how we almost get into wars every two to four years. Sorry. Anyway, just as an example, in the fall of 66 AD, Governor Flores stole the equivalent of $62,000 from the temple treasury in Jerusalem, claiming back taxes. And then when a protest broke out about him stealing from the Jerusalem temple, he ordered his soldiers to plunder homes and to kill the populace at will. Over three and a half thousand individuals were killed, with nearly 2,000 of them whipped and crucified, despite many of them being Roman citizens. Peter's audience is undergoing a transition right now between governors that were friendly towards Christians and then a governor like this. And we need to understand, this is the world into which Peter was speaking. This is the world into which he was speaking. He was speaking to believers who lived under both a supreme and a local government that was morally bankrupt and societally out of control. We can't use, and I say this, why? Because, and I'm saying this because these are the feelings I felt this week, right? I'm saying this because we can't use the excuse Well, the situation Peter was speaking to wasn't as bad as our own that we have here in America. That is objectively not true. We have have some bad politicians. (laughs) We do. But none of them can hold a candle next to these two guys. The moral and societal corruption that existed among the government of that day referenced here is greater than our own. It really is. Those who had been appointed by God, as Peter says here, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, were doing neither. They were not fulfilling their God-ordained purpose for government to such a degree that it makes the moral and societal problems that we have here in America often look like child's play. And so while Peter fulfills his role as a believer to speak the truth, and we talked about that last week, right? He does so here. He reminds us, what is government's job? Government's job is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That is why government has a sword, as we saw in Romans chapter 13. So while Peter fulfills his role as a believer to speak the truth, Peter also doesn't retreat one inch from still affirming a believer's most basic responsibility towards their government, and that most basic obligation is what? To be subject. To be committed as much as you are able to submission, honor, and obedience to your governing authorities. Now, we have to ask the question first at a very general sense. We're told here to be subject But what does that command be subject look like for us as believers living today in 21st century America? Because let's be honest, uh, their system of government looked quite a bit different than our system of government that we live in today. To be subject or to order yourself under a dictatorship is relatively straightforward, isn't it? That guy makes all the decisions, and as much as I am able, with only one exception, which I'll get to in a second, I am to submit to his decisions. 
But how do we as believers be subject and order ourselves properly under a constitutional republic? One that is comprised, statedly, of the people, by the people, and for the people. See, in a really weird sense, our constitution, the system of government that is over us, the government over us calls us to be participants in the governing Right? We, we, we are to elect representatives who rule and make decisions in our place. That is how a constitutional republic functions. So, how do we order ourselves properly as Christians beneath the government that God has given us here in 21st century America? I would give you two suggestions for you to consider this morning. First, two ways. We fulfill our obligation. And second, we acknowledge God's oversight. So first... We subject ourselves and we order ourselves beneath the unique government God has given us here in America in the 21st century by fulfilling our obligation. The constitutional democratic republic that we are currently under only works as long as people are engaging in democracy and are participating in appointing those representatives that most closely align to their views. And if we don't do this, then we are undermining the very government that God has commanded us to submit and to uphold in honor by failing to fulfill our most basic obligation towards it and the most basic thing it's telling us to do. You might not like voting, okay? You might prefer someone else to make all of the decisions for you. If that's your view, you'll probably get your wish someday. (laughs) But until then, all of us as believers are called on to order ourselves properly under the system of government that God has given us. And right now, that government that God has given us tells us that we ought to participate in appointing representatives. We ought to subject ourselves to that. We ought to fulfill our obligation. The second way we can subject ourselves to the unique government God has given us is, to not, only, is not only by fulfilling our obligation, but also by acknowledging God's oversight over it all. Because, you see, because we think we have such a voice in government, right, we can begin to think that we're actually the ones in control of what happens. And we need to remember, ultimately, we're not. Because we have such a voice in our government, we can think this. But Daniel 2.20 says that God is the one who removes kings and who sets up kings, who, chapter 4, verse 17, who rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he wills. So, When God makes those decisions, we should acknowledge his oversight. And then Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. And so when God makes those decisions, even in government, through our elected representatives, we should acknowledge, you know what? He is overseeing this as well. So these are two ways that we can submit to our unique government. We can fulfill our obligation, and we can acknowledge God's oversight. But but even if, so now let's go back to Scripture. Even if this constitutional republic over us is removed by the hand of God, and we are put under a system of government that is very foreign to us, where perhaps one man reigns supreme, our fundamental obligation as believers towards government will still remain. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Why? Is it because there are outstanding moral and societal leaders? No, but because of verse 15. 
For this is what? I I, kind of want to hear this one. (laughs) For this is the will of God. That's why. For the Lord's sake, we want to do the will of God. So listen, I know I've said a lot over these last few weeks. To help us in our understanding of this passage, I'm still not done with it. We get to verse 17. But I just want you to know up front, I cannot make 1 Peter 2, 13-14 say anything other than what it actually says. I can't. I am bound to the Word of God. And to preach this word, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who, good, who, do, who do good. Right? God's word stands. It stands in Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It stands in Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And he says, teach this with authority. And it stands here in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Our role as believers is ever to speak the truth of God. Our responsibility is to be subject. You say, well, is there any exceptions at all? Yes. Yes, there is. There is one. And that exception is this. When the government forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids. In those cases... When the state forces you to choose between allegiance to Christ or allegiance to the state, you always choose Christ. You always choose Christ. That's the exception. When government forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, you submit to God and you do not submit to government. And Scripture is full of examples for this. First, for example, when the government commands what God forbids. We see a couple examples of this in Scripture. For example, in uh, Exodus 1, verses 15 through 22, the Egyptian pharaoh commanded all the Hebrew midwives to kill all the Jewish boys that were being born. The midwives decided, no, we cannot obey in this instance. It would violate God's command, his command, you shall not murder, from Exodus 20, verse 13. And God rewarded them for their resistance, for their lack of subjection. They did what was right. Again, in Daniel chapter 3, the Babylonian king commanded his subjects to bow down and worship a golden image of himself. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Very important story. It demonstrates how do you live as elect exiles. The story of Daniel's, the Old Testament narrative of that. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say no. We can't obey in this instance. To bow down before this golden image would violate God's command, His command to worship only Him from Deuteronomy 6 verse 13. And in that case, God protected them. They did what was right. And when the government commands what God so when the government commands what God forbids, we should not be subject. The same goes when the government forbids what God commands. For example, in Daniel chapter 6, The Persian king said that no prayers should be made to any other god except to him. 
Daniel said, no, I cannot obey in this instance. Why? Because it would violate God's command, his command for his people to pray, especially when in times of exile, as 1 Kings 8, 46-48 describes. And then again, a New Testament example in Acts chapter 4, verses 19-20, through 20, the Jewish authorities came along and they commanded Peter and John to stop preaching the gospel. And they replied, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. In other words, we can't obey in this instance because it would violate God's command, His command to preach the gospel to all creation. Mark 6, 15, 16, 15. So, there it is. (laughs) When the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, we must, as Acts 5.29, in subjection to the Lord, obey God rather than men. We are never to be acting out of a spirit of rebellion, but always, as believers, out of a spirit of subjection. It's just which authority must we listen to? So that's that's the exception. When the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, we must obey God rather than man. But in, but at least from what I can see in Scripture so far and all the study I've done, in all other cases, the primary way we show the goodness and saving power of Christ to a watching world is by fulfilling this most basic obligation of a Christian to his government, and that is by being subject. And by the way, in all the examples of the biblical, uh, in all the biblical examples I just gave you, not one time did believers violate good laws in order to protest the bad laws. And I want to make that clear. They continued to uphold their civil government and continued to submit to their governing authorities. It's never right to do what's wrong in order to get a chance to possibly one day do what's right. For a follower of Christ, the end never justifies the means. You do right. Period. Because the basic obligation of all believers towards their government is to submit. On this, the glory of Christ and the salvation of the lost depends. Now, one final point before I let you go. We need to know that submitting to government means submitting even to the consequences of disobeying government, even if we have to disobey out of obedience to God. Okay? Being subject means being willing to accept the consequences. That's the example you see laid out in Scripture. For example, let's look at those that I just gave you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were forced to obey God rather than man, they still submitted to the consequences of their disobedience, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace, weren't they? They even said, we might die today, but even if we die, we can't obey. They submitted to their government, even in disobedience. Daniel, when he was forced to obey God rather than man, in an area of his life, he still submitted to the consequences of his disobedience and allowed himself to be thrown into the lion's den, even as his own king wept over that decision. He submitted to his government, even in disobedience. And Peter and John, when they were forced to obey God rather than man, they still submitted to the consequences of their disobedience and they allowed themselves to be beaten by the Jewish leaders. They submitted to their government even in disobedience. And indeed, Acts 5.41 says that they left the presence of the council rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. See, that privilege was only given to them because they submitted to their government even in their 
disobedience. See, Christians are not those who try to avoid the consequences of breaking the law. Even if it's an unjust law, you have to break. No, followers of Christ are characteristically subject to their government and to the consequences their government brings for the Lord's sake. And we saw that even in Romans 12, verse 2. Those who resist will incur judgment. That is why I say that if you suffer the consequences for resisting government, even if you have to, you understand that has to be a just consequence. Well, not a just consequence. It's something you should expect. It's something that you should expect. If there's ever a point where we are forced to not submit to our government because they're commanding something that God forbids or they're forbidding something that God commands, we ought to do that not in a high-handed or arrogant spirit. This is really where I'm coming from. We ought not to do that in a high-handed or arrogant spirit, but we ought to do it with a sober reverence and trembling, knowing that we are about to act against the very authorities God and His providence has established, and that we may very well have to face the consequences that come from it. And in that moment, we had better make sure that what we are doing is submitting, submitting ultimately to the Lord. We had better make sure that we are willing to submit to whatever those consequences may be for the Lord's sake. And that's where I want to leave you today. Heavy words for us living in 21st century America. Everything that I've just talked about, all of this, is to be done for the Lord's sake. When we show stunning submission to our governing authorities to this extent, we not only grab the astonished attention of the unsaved world, we glorify Christ in imitating Him. And when we resist the authority that God has given us because we must submit to God, and yet nevertheless we accept what may be the consequences from that, we show stunning submission and grab the attention of the unsaved world and glorify Christ as we imitate Him in that way as well. Think about Jesus. Think about Jesus, believer. He was the one who on earth submitted to so many different things that were unjust and unrighteous. He submitted to His parents who often didn't have a clue what was going on. He submitted to His spiritual leaders who frankly, though sometimes they taught what was right, lived horribly awful lives. And he submitted to his governing authorities even when they were out to kill him. Even when his parents were ignorant and not understanding. Even when his spiritual leaders were sinful and hypocritical. Even when his governing authorities were corrupt and unjust. Our Lord and Savior, the shepherd of our souls, as Peter is going to say at the end of this chapter, still submitted to every human institution. And when he couldn't, when he had to obey God rather than man, when he just had to be about his father's business, when he had to declare his deity before the Sanhedrin, when he testified to the truth before Pilate, he still submitted to all of the consequences of all of those actions, even unto death, even the death of a cross. And that's why I say, praise God. 
because he submitted, you and I are saved. There is, and this is Peter's whole argument, there is a salvific effect to uh, to submission. There is a salvific effect to submission. That's why it's so important to walk in our Savior's steps in this first and most fundamental obligation of a believer to his government, and that is to be subject. Because he submitted, we are saved. And so may we walk faithfully in his footsteps this week, submitting to God first, and then, as appropriate, to the authorities God has given us. And through our stunning submission, may we this week lead others to salvation by our lives as well. This is the Word of God from 1 Peter 2, 13-14, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience in the fervent care of one another until He who is sovereign over all, the King of kings and Lord of lords, returns. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You that it reminds us of how important it is to be like Christ even to the heart. And so, Father, I pray that You would teach us more about the heart of Christ as we go through these passages. As we consider what it looks like as someone who has been born again from above, as a citizen of heaven, as an elect exile, what it looks like to operate in this world for Your honor and for Your glory. Father, I pray that the mission of Christ would be our mission as He did all things to take those who were lost and wandering and to lead them back to the shepherd of their souls. Father, I pray that that would be our great mission and objective as well and that we would do what is good as according to Your will for the honor of Christ and for the salvation of the lost. Give us grace, Father, to understand these things and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.